Amen. What is going on, Grace Church? It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I look out, I don't know half of you, and that is crazy. It is exciting to see what the Lord has been doing at Grace Church since you guys sent us out, uh, however long ago that was. Some days it seems really short, some days it seems really long since since we uh, went down to Panama City. But it is good to be with you guys. A number of you guys have asked me uh, for, for a quick little update. So let me just say, um, man, we are so grateful for you guys. As you have sent us out, sent us well, supported us, prayed for us, the Lord has been so gracious to us as a church plant over this last year and a half. Um, some updates, we've um, been able to have, been able to baptize a number of, of new members into the church. Most recent one this Easter Sunday, a Lord, uh, a girl who the Lord saved just in an incredible way through her journey overseas and getting to see what, um, what Islam was like, living among them for years and then coming home and looking for a place um, where she, she knew there was something going on. She knew that that couldn't be what faith was supposed to be. And so she, the Lord sent her on a search, um, and she found Christ. And we were able to baptize her into our church family um, back on Easter Sunday. And so I could go the whole time I'm supposed to preach. Um, so I'm not going to tell you all the stories, but so many things that the Lord have done like that. That's just totally out of our control. But we can see the Lord guiding it. One way to ask to pray, uh, I think some of you guys already know this, but another story of God's just great kindness to us as a church, is there's a church in Panama City that has decided to close its doors, which we never want to see a church close. At the same time, in that decision, they've also decided to give us their church facility to be able to move into um, and, and kind of have a permanent home there in Panama City. And we are, we are so pumped. We had no idea that, honestly, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but we had no idea that church existed. Um, Panama City is kind of a big place, and so we didn't know a thing about them until they called and said, would you guys want this to be your, your church home where you meet week to week? And so um, pray for us, because I'm having to read legal documents and things like that, and that is not my wheelhouse at all, um, but God has been helpful to us there. And so continue to pray that the Lord continue to work in, in Panama City. Um, one of the, the good things about us meeting on Sunday nights is I get to be places on Sunday mornings with churches, so I'm, I'm so glad to be with you guys. If you'll turn to Mark chapter 14. I know you guys just recently finished preaching through the book of Mark. So did we. Um, I think you guys finished before us. Um, but I wanted to come back to a passage in Mark chapter 14 because since we studied through it about three months ago as a church, I haven't stopped thinking about it. Um, and so I wanted to bring you back to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, is a, it's a tough chapter in Scripture. It's, it's the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark, but also it's one of the darkest. It is a chapter in which over and over and over again, people turn their backs on Jesus. Not just the people we would expect. Not just the religious leaders, not just Judas, but his disciples. Everyone that followed him, the crowds, they all turn their back on Jesus. And yet, in the middle of that chapter where all of that is happening... There are also some small pictures of faithfulness, particularly here in Mark in an unnamed woman. And so I want to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll dive in. Mark says, It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. 
But while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and then poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask for his help as we dive into it this morning. God, we do love your word. And we do love your church. We're so grateful just to be together with your people. God, we thank you for the freedom we have to gather. We thank you for the freedom that we have to, to study, to proclaim your word together. We don't want to take that for granted. But God, we pray that just this wouldn't just be another gathering where people get together. We pray that by your word and through your spirit, you would change our hearts this morning. You wouldn't just put more knowledge into our heads. But you would change our hearts and make us more like your son. Pray that you would use me as, as weak and as feeble as I am and feel this morning to explain your word well. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. There's a series of theology books that I have really enjoyed getting more and more copies of. I'm one of those guys that I buy far more books than I have time to read, but I somehow don't stop buying them. There's a series called Perspectives. And what the Perspective series tries to do is basically... Any perspective that people have on different points, they try and explain it. And so if you think about anything that Christians have debated, that Christians have argued over in the past, they have a book about it. And they'll tell you, here's all the different things, all the different perspectives you can take. Everything from the way the world's going to end, to um, women in ministry, to how Christians should view politics. Whatever Christians have argued about... They're there to explain the different views you could take. One of the things that I like about these books is they don't tell you which one's right. However many perspectives are, they pick someone who believes that that one is right, and they let them explain it. And then they let you, the reader, kind of figure out for yourself which one is the most convincing. You've got the scripture in front of you. You've got the best person that could possibly explain the view to you. You pick which is the best. Mark is doing this same thing as he opens chapter 14. We see what I think is four different perspectives, four different ways that people view Jesus, four different groups of people or four different individuals, and how they view Jesus. The difference between those perspectives books and what Mark is doing is Mark is very clear on which perspective is right. And the reason Mark is so clear is because Jesus made it clear. That there is only one proper perspective to have. There's only one way to view him. I give Mark the credit for that because this isn't just a story that he's telling. Mark is piecing together different stories. 
as you went through, I'm sure Dr. Allen said that Mark isn't strictly chronological. What he's trying to do is he's trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And so because of that, he brings together different stories explaining, trying to help you see that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that's what he's doing here in 1 through 11. Verses 1 and 2 happen early in the week that Jesus dies, and then sometime later, verses 3 to 9 happen, and then later still, verses 10 through 11. And so Mark is piecing these things together to help us see what a proper perspective on Jesus is. We're not going to go through these in strict order. Mark does something a lot that I've I really enjoyed as we studied through it. We started calling it a sandwich style. Um, he, he sandwiches stories. So he'll start telling a story, and then he'll start telling another story. He might be kind of scatterbrained. And then he, starts, he goes back to that original story, and so we call it a sandwich structure. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to hit kind of the, the bread pieces first, if you want to call them that, and then we'll end looking at the meat. Let's look at the first thing there in 1 and 2, where we see the religious leader's perspective, their perspective of open hostility. The religious leaders in their open hostility. Look at verse 1. It was two days before the Passover, the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. Again, Mark doesn't stick to a close timeline. He does want in telling the story for us to know when this is happening. It's happening Passover week. And while that may not mean a lot to us, what this means is this was the busiest week in the life of these leaders. This is the busiest week in the life of Jerusalem as hundreds of thousands of people were flocking to Jerusalem for this festival and for the Passover feast. And even in all that going on, the leaders, their biggest week of the year, their focus is not on their work. Their focus is not on leading people to worship. Their focus is on getting rid of this man. Getting rid of this one who has done so much to take away their power, has done so much to take away their influence, and is changing their way of life. And they will not let it stand any longer. But we also see their cowardice there in verse 2. we got to get rid of this guy. But we got to make sure we do it carefully, otherwise people will riot, and we will lose the very influence that we're trying to save. But we do see these guys hate Jesus. They hate everything about what He is doing. We typically have a terrible view of the chief priest, of the religious leaders. Certainly we should, right? All the gospel accounts make it clear these are not good guys. At the same time, They were viewed as good guys, right? These guys weren't just going around killing everyone. It seems like that's what they do because that's what they did with Jesus. But they lived what looked to be righteous lives. And that's the point of why Jesus speaks against them so much, is that they looked on the outside that they were doing everything right. But when their way of life started to get pressured, when their influence started to get challenged, their hearts came out. You started to see who they really were. They hate this man. And it leads them to do evil, evil things, things that, frankly, they would have never thought themselves capable of. And I think we can learn from that, as you see that next thing there, a prejudiced perspective, which is what they end up having of Jesus. At some point, there is nothing he could say that they would agree with. He could read the law, and they would disagree with him. He did read the law, and they disagreed with him. 
their prejudiced perspective on Jesus made them evil. And it made them do evil things. My guess is this perspective is going to be the least common in the room today. Right? I don't think that there are many of us, I would hope that there are none of us that have an open hostility towards Christ. Probably the very fact that you're here and not shouting at me while I'm saying what I'm saying shows you don't have some sort of open hostility toward Christ. At the same time, we can see this, right? We can see this growing around us today. We can see more and more hostility towards the gospel, more and more hostility towards Jesus. But it makes sense because the root is the same. When our way of life begins to be challenged, when who's in charge of our life begins to be challenged, that's not okay. You're not able to just be out on the outskirts. It's no longer okay to just Jesus is out there, he's okay, he's fine for some. And the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word begins to challenge the ways of the world and the influencers of the world, there is more and more open hostility. And so while this may not be a perspective of us in the room, it's certainly a perspective we need to recognize. Because while it may not be ours, it will be one that we encounter more and more as the days continue. The second thing I want to look at, skip down to verse 10. We'll look at Judas's deceitful treachery. Judas's deceitful treachery. So again, this is days later. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, as if we didn't know, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad promised to give him money. And so he started looking for an opportunity to betray him. Matthew 26 tells us that the agreed upon price that they're talking about here was 30 pieces of silver. Interestingly, in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, we see that that same price, 30 pieces of silver, was the price that had to be paid if an ox accidentally gored a slave. What a small price to pay. What a seemingly insignificant price to pay to betray the Savior of the world. But also notice, as I pointed out, Judas is called one of the twelve. Why does Mark feel the need to do that? Judas has been mentioned along and along through the book of Mark. We know who he is if we've been reading the first 13 chapters. Why does he point out he's one of the twelve? Mark is making sure we're aware that this is an insider. This is someone who is close to Jesus who is betraying him. This is someone who saw the miracles, someone who heard the teachings, someone who knew what was coming. The insider, as close as he could be, was the one who betrayed Jesus. I think there's a principle there for us that proximity to Jesus does not ensure faithfulness to him. And listen, church, we need to be careful of that. We need to be careful to think about ourselves that proximity to Jesus does not ensure faithfulness to him. Usually when we talk about Judas, we use him as a way to, to kind of, I don't know if I would say make excuses, but he's, he's the outskirts. He's the outlier, right? We say things like, well, even Jesus was 11 for 12, right? Even Jesus didn't get perfect in his discipleship. And when we see someone fall away, we'll say something like that. And G- Judas is kind of the outlier. But at the same time, that's hard. It's hard to see the things Judas saw. It's hard to to watch and hear and be around all the same things that the other 11 were around and for Judas to miss it. And so we've got to ask, what happened? 
What happened in Judas's life? And I think Mark tries to explain it. He's pointing out to us, Mark, but also the other gospel writers, the pride. It was the pride of Judas's life that led him to betray Jesus. And we can see that in our own lives, a prideful perspective. A prideful perspective makes us selfish. Prideful perspective makes us selfish. And that's what we see happening in Judas here. John's account of this story tells us that Judas is the one leading the scolding. When when the disciples scold her, Judas is leading it. John also tells us that one of Judas' roles was the keeper of the purse. He was the guy in charge of the money. And so when we put those things together, we can see this starting to take place. And it seems what was happening was the man in charge of the money wasn't consulted when a big, big amount of money was being wasted. This is his role. He's in charge. And nobody consulted him. Mark seems to make us think that this was the last straw for Mark, or for Judas. This was the straw that broke the camel's back that made him decide, I'm going to betray this man. And when we read it like this, it makes us think it's because I wasn't consulted. This is my role. I'm in charge of this part of the ministry. And it wasn't given, no one asked me. It was just done. And he wasn't okay with it. None of us want to identify with Judas, right? I would guess no one here has named their child Judas. I would guess no one has a tattoo of Judas on them. Jesus' brother, Judas, changed his name and began going by Jude because he didn't want to be associated with Judas. It's not a name that stuck, right? There's a lot of names we use. From the Bible. Judas isn't one of them. No one wants to be associated with Judas. At the same time, if we're honest, I don't have to raise our hands, but if we're honest, I can see myself in this. I can see myself saying things, why wasn't I consulted before this decision was made? Might not say that out loud. Jesus, you're driving my life in this direction. Why didn't you ask me if I was okay with that? I'm going to be the one to make the final decision about what I do here. Thanks for the input, but it's my call. I know that this is what Pastor Richie has preached on, but he doesn't really mean me. That just doesn't work for me. I know that this is what the Bible says, but that's, that part of it is outdated, and I'm not going to apply that part because it just doesn't fit with where I am. If we're honest, we have this prideful perspective oftentimes in our lives. And for Judas, and I would say for us, that original sin of pride often leads to the sin of selfishness that often leads to a myriad of actions, sinful actions out of that pride, out of that selfishness. Third perspective, I think probably the one that's most common is the disciples' religious apathy. The disciples' religious apathy. This is probably the part of this text that I think is most overlooked when we look at Mark 14. Look at verse 4. Some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Again, John tells us Judas is leading this, but other disciples, it's they. It's not just Judas. Others are a part of it. 300 denarii there is about a year's wages for the common man in that day. So let's just use a round number 
and say 50 grand. That's, we can argue about what the actual average is, but let's use a round number and say that. If you're anything like me, your first question reading these verses is not a spiritual one. Your first question is, what in the world kind of perfume is worth $50,000, right? I've never seen that Dior commercial, right? That what perfume is worth $50,000? Perfectly fair question. If you're asking that, I'm asking that as well. And the answer, Mark tells us, is nard. Two things you might think of. I think older people in the room might think lard when you think nard. Younger people in the room might think nard dog when you hear the word nard. So there's, there's different ways you might go. But either way, neither of those seem to be worth $50,000. So why? What was it? What was this $50,000 nard that everybody had to have? Nard was this sweet-smelling perfume. It's made only in India, still made today, still incredibly rare. They used it in tombs. Probably not $50,000 worth, but they used it in tombs to help the tomb stay smelling good as long as it could while the dead body did what dead bodies do. Why does this common woman have $50,000 worth of that stuff is another fair question. But think about this. They didn't have banks. They didn't have really the, the same ways to hold wealth that we had. And so a bottle like this would have been a sort of family heirloom. It would have been a way for families to pass along wealth. And so in that way, this would have been a heritage. This would have been an inheritance, not just for her, but for the family that she brings and she breaks at the feet of Jesus. When we think about that, the outrage of the disciples starts to make a little more sense. You need to be careful. I'm getting ready to talk bad about what they did, but I want to defend them here. You're throwing away the family inheritance. For what? Can't we worship him in, in any number of ways? Why this wasteful? That's where their anger came from. It came from the fact that seemingly she wasted it on something that didn't seem to be valuable to them. Let's sell it. We can use it to give to the poor. Were their motives good? Probably. We know Judas's weren't, but probably the rest of them. I would, they didn't know what Judas was going to do. And so he's saying, they're saying, yeah, we could use this for a lot of really good things that Jesus has told us to do. So it makes sense. I think I'd be with them in this moment. Let's worship him together in some way, and then let's use this for his glory so that more people would know about this great Savior. But Jesus condemns them, not her. And he says, she's doing a good thing for me. Tony Merida here says that the disciples' heart had not yet caught up to their confession. The disciples' hearts had not yet caught up to their confession. They knew he was the Messiah. They believed he was the Messiah. They were willing to tell anyone, anywhere, this is the Savior of the world. But their hearts hadn't caught up to that reality, to that confession. Sinclair Ferguson says, Here were men who were more interested in their service than in their master. Here are men who were more interested in their service than their master. Y'all, that punched me when I read that. Because the same often could be said about me. I've got my list of things that have to be done week in and week out. Good things, things that I hope and pray bring glory to the Lord, help draw people to Him. But oftentimes that list can take priority over my glorious worship of the one who has brought me from death to life. That's what happened to them. 
became more interested in their service than in their master. And here's the implication for us. A pragmatic perspective, a practical perspective, makes us miss God's plan. A practical, pragmatic perspective can make us miss God's plan. Again, I want to stick up for them because I feel it. I'm there with them. Following Jesus three years now, seeing Him do miracles, seeing Him act in countless ways to bring glory to Himself, to point to His own deity. And yet they missed it. They would rather do something else for someone else than to worship at the feet of this Savior. They immediately go into service mode. And so I'll ask, are you like the disciples? Have you found in your life all the the practical, comfortable ways in which you can serve Jesus? Have you found all the the sweet spot of, of serving, being seen serving? But it doesn't actually cost a whole lot. It fits into your rhythm. You've got your uh, once a year service, sorry, once a month service in Grace Kids. Don't do it once a year. Once a month service in Grace Kids. You've got that. You've kind of planned which week it is. You've got that. It's pretty easy. You've got your once a year service at the football games with the church. These are all pretty easy rhythms for us to get into. And please hear me. I'm not saying those things aren't valuable. But I'm saying, are you also thinking about how can I pour my life out in worship of this Savior? Have we gotten more focused on how we can make service compatible with our lives than to show a complete and utter devotion to the one who has given us life? That's where the disciples missed it here. Have you figured out things to say to other believers, to other church members? Have you figured out what you can say that shares enough that they think you're doing okay, they, you're telling them the ways you're serving the Lord, how things are getting better? You're sharing just enough to where they won't ask more questions that will really dig at the things you know you need to be talking about you really don't want to talk about. Have we become practical in our service of the Lord? It's an easy perspective. I think it's the natural perspective for even the Christian to find those rhythms. Jesus didn't like it in them. And here's the harder question. As this woman was, are you willing to waste your life on worship? Are you willing to waste your life worshiping this Savior? She broke the bottle. She didn't take the top off. Nothing was going to be saved. Are you willing to break the bottle of your life in order to worship this king? Danny Aiken points this out, and it's true, and I see it. He says, The world, sadly many in the church, will never have a problem with moderate, measured devotion to Christ. They'll have little or no problem with too many possessions and a pursuit of a comfortable and convenient Christianity. But walk away from a real career in order to serve the Lord, and you'll be called foolish. Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord in an inner city, and you will be deemed silly, impractical, 
walk away from family and friends to head out to the mission field, young kids in tow to spread the gospel among an unreached people group. And you'll be foolish. You might need counseling. You may be criticized here, but in heaven you have a master who applauds your love for him. What's our perspective? Which feedback matters more to us? Now listen, I'm not saying that a secular career living here in Bonifay or in Panama City is somehow less than serving the Lord. What I'm trying to get us to the point is to say, where do I need to pour my life out? Where have I been holding back because it's not comfortable for me? And that's the perspective we need to get to. Because that's what Mark puts forth in this woman. As we see, lastly, the woman's unrestrained affection. We see this woman's unrestrained affection. While he was in Bethany, verse 3, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. And then listen to Jesus' commendation of her. As they chide her in verse 4 and 5, Mock her, not mock her, but scold her. Then verse 6, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you. You can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. But she has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it is. As we gather together around the gospel this morning, we think of this woman. We talk about this woman and her worship. As the gospel of Mark has been spread in nearly every corner of the world over the last 2,000 years, this woman has been viewed as someone who worshiped the Lord rightly. Jesus is right. John tells us that this woman is Mary. Mark doesn't. But John tells us this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus who has been raised from the dead. Simon, the guy who's mentioned there in verse 3, who was once a leper, presumably because he's within the city, he's not a leper anymore. I don't know of anyone else who cures leprosy, so I'm assuming Jesus did that. So this is a family unit. Simon, the father, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the children. This woman's life has been changed over and over and over again by Jesus. Notice how Mark names everything in this story, except the woman. He tells us where it's happening in Bethany. He tells us whose house it's happening at. He tells us all the characters, but he purposefully leaves Mary unnamed. It's not because he didn't know. He, he mentions Mary in chapters 15 and 16, at the cross and at the grave. It's not that he doesn't want to talk about her. Remember, Judas was the insider that betrayed Jesus. Mark is trying to show us that this is the outsider who worshipped him. He, he's setting up beside these two people, one an insider who wouldn't worship him, and not only wouldn't he worship him, he would betray him. And then the outsider. We don't even get her name. I know we do, but the way Mark tells the story, we don't even have her name, is worshipping at the feet of Jesus. He's purposefully leaving her unnamed. She doesn't need a name to worship Jesus, right? She doesn't need the accolades. She will be talked about as the unnamed woman 
And it will bring just as much glory to Jesus as the unnamed woman, as it would if we knew her name. Because it's about her worship of Jesus. Not about her. Jesus' response is peculiar there, right? You'll always have the poor. Critics of Jesus have used this to say Jesus didn't really care about the poor. He just cared about building his kingdom. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is, I'm dying this week. Serve the poor next week. Be with me these last days. He's already predicted three times that he was going to die. This is him reaffirming one more time, I'm about to die. Be with me. Serve the poor the rest of your lives. And they would, right? We see the stories throughout um, the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, and then even in church history. We see their service of the Lord. But this week was meant to worship at the feet of Jesus. And the woman gets that. The disciples missed it. Prioritized perspective makes us obedient. A prioritized perspective makes us obedient. That's what this woman has. I've been watching, as many of you guys have, the last two months. And many have been praising the courage of the Ukrainian people in the face of just unimaginable hardship for us, right? News stories about courageous president all the way from famous actors moving home to serve their country. I want to mention to you two stories that I heard. Bravery of a different kind. You're not going to see this on your favorite news channel. It's worth us talking about here as a church. One, Vassal Estrella, a pastor of a Bible church in Kiev. They were deciding as a church what they were going to do, knowing this was coming, watching it coming for months. What are we going to do when the shoe drops? This is what he said. He said, we've decided to stay, both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. And while the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in this struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. While we may feel helpless in the face of such a crisis, we can pray. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. That's a life that understands the purpose of the believer here on earth, isn't it? It's to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, to make Him known, and to love our neighbors with His love. Another, the president of the Baptist Theological Seminary there, his name's Yaroslav Pees, maybe? I don't know. Yaroslav, I'm pretty confident in. He says this, Churches already agreed. Those that are in the western part of the Ukraine, where he is, told our brothers and sisters in the other parts, the eastern part, where the, the worst stuff is happening, if something happens, we'll open our homes and our churches to you. We'll go underground. Persecution is not new to the church in Ukraine. You have to understand, historically, we had that experience under the Soviet Union. So the church didn't forget what it means to be persecuted. And I think that we will rearrange, reorganize, and still do what we always do. Preach the gospel. Our news stations may be moving on from this. Probably didn't cover this in the first place. And we may, to a certain extent, have moved on as well. Church, this is faithfulness. This is faithfulness that's been happening throughout the church for the last 2,000 years and around the world. Obedience to the Lord, regardless of cost. But in order to do that, we have to have gospel priorities. 
these that I've mentioned and so many more, these are levels of obedience to Christ that we know not, aren't they? I can't fathom that decision. But it comes from a right perspective of who Christ is, a right perspective of who we are. I'm tempted to say, when I read that guy's story, why don't you leave now so that you can minister later? Why don't you leave now so that you can pick up the pieces of the people when all this is over? That's certainly practical, isn't it? But his perspective is to serve and share Jesus as clearly as he can for as long as he can. And his perspective is there's no time more pressing than now for my people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Katie was teaching in Sunday school, we saw the Holy Spirit saying the same thing and people getting two different, having two different responses. That The Holy Spirit was saying, if you go to this place, you will suffer and you will die if you go to this place to take the gospel to them. And one group of people is saying, the Holy Spirit's telling us not to go. And the other group is saying, no, we got to go. One person is hearing, people need to hear the gospel. Other people are hearing, it's going to be difficult. What's the difference? One has a proper perspective on the goal of this life in the life of the Christian. To make Jesus known. So we ask ourselves, are we willing to worship and obey Christ regardless of the cost? A $50,000 bottle of perfume is not too much. Whatever the savings account is, is not too much. Breaking social convention, which this woman did, to be scoffed at in order to worship Jesus is not too much. Because she had a a prioritized perspective. She had the right priorities. But even more than that, last thing we'll say, she had a proper perspective. She had a proper perspective and it helped her see the kingdom of God in its clear light. Think about all these different characters we've talked about. The chief priest, they were the ones that were explaining the kingdom of God to people every day. They couldn't see that killing Jesus would actually solidify his ministry. They couldn't see that they were actually playing into the hands of everything that had been promised for millennia. Couldn't see that because of their hatred. They couldn't see that because of their own desire to hold power. Judas couldn't see that his selfishness was leading him to throw away the greatest treasure he had ever known for 30 pieces of silver. He couldn't see it because his perspective was on himself and what he could get, what he deserved out of a situation. The disciples in that moment, and certainly they get it later, but in that moment, the disciples couldn't see that now was the time to worship. Service would come. It would be needed, but for them to serve well, they had to see Jesus. They had to worship Jesus well. And their apathy toward that worship led them to focus on a checklist and miss the moment of being able to be a part of anointing Jesus for the death that the death that would bring them life. But the woman. The woman saw the signs. She, she believed Jesus when he said his time was close at hand for his death. And she wanted to worship at his feet one more time. It's interesting. When we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus every time. Luke 10. She, she is at the feet of Jesus while her sister is busy with much serving. John 11. She weeps at the feet of Jesus when her brother had died. And here, she gets one more chance to sit at the feet of Jesus. But she'll then be at the foot of the cross, worshiping him. 
It was her perspective that made all the difference. I love that that Tiffany read Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt His name forever. Why? Verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and He rescued me from all my fears. What perspective will you have of Jesus? Will you approach Him with open hostility? I'll give you an easy one. Will you approach Him with open hostility as so many around us are beginning to do? Will you continue to know all of the good things about Him? Put on a face of worship in public. Sing all the right songs. Give all the right answers, but then betray Him in private. Or betray Him when it matters most to those who are against Him? Will you put forth a half-hearted effort? Will you believe in Him? Will you trust in Him? Will you call Him the Savior? But be unwilling to make your life difficult in order to worship Him faithfully. Or will we take this fourth view? The only right perspective. Will we worship Jesus with abandon? Jesus did not die on the cross so that we might worship Him half-heartedly. He did not die on the cross so that we would pay lip service to Him in public with no intention to serve Him faithfully in private. Jesus died on the cross so that we might be made new, so that we might be brought from death to life and use that new life to bring Him glory until He takes us He died so that we might worship Him and let everyone see, regardless of the cost, our devotion to the Lord, fully, completely, and forever. Church, this is one of the the most important questions we will answer. How will you respond to Jesus? What will be your perspective on Jesus? If you are not a follower of Christ, We would love to answer any questions you may have about what what exactly are we talking about when we say this? What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? We would love to help you see what it means to be made new. To have the, the sin of our life completely taken away and paid for at the foot of the cross of Jesus who died to give us life. If you are a Christian here today, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to think through What would Jesus say? If I was in the room, if I was a fifth perspective, what would Jesus say? Would he be be satisfied and glorified with my worship of him, with my devotion to him? I pray that we're able to answer yes, because it is the goal, the aim of my life, to glorify him and to make him known. Let's do that together in the days ahead. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you because you are worthy to be worshipped. We, we believe and we desire the things that we sang, that you would be enthroned upon the praises of a thousand generations before us and after us. But God, we also see in ourselves selfishness. We also see sinful desires that want to make this world, our world, about us. God, I pray that you would help us to see the glories of Jesus day in and day out. 
in his word, through your church, in the Spirit's work in our lives. God, help us to see you for who you are and to worship you rightly because of it. We give you our lives. We break the bottles of our lives at your feet because you're worthy. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.